Revolution I can't get no call to action But I try, and I try, and I try Hello and welcome to Call to Action, the go-to podcast for anyone trying to make sense of the world of marketing, business and beyond. In an industry that is a minefield of utter bollocks, we aim to capture our heroes and allies from the front line to have a chinwag with. It's like Pokemon Go, with the single but vital exception that it's not a short-term bandwagon of shite. It's brought to you by Gasp and I'm Giles Edwards. Today I've caught Roger Wade, a disruptive entrepreneur dead set on backing people rather than spreadsheets. Roger's list of career accolades is intimidatingly impressive. First founding Boxfresh, a pioneering British streetwear brand, he went on to transform a patch of wasteland to create the world's first pop-up dining and shopping destination Box Park in the heart of London's Shoreditch. Today, Roger is putting his passion for independent brands, the future of retail and thinking outside the box into his role as chairman of Box Fund VC. Not conforming to the idea that physical retail is dying, Roger says, buying on the internet is like watching fireworks on the TV. Welcome to the show, Roger. Thank you, Giles. You've obviously done your research. (laughs) We try, we try. I hope I can live up to that illustrious introduction so you never know let's see let's see let's start with our seven quick fires so easy one to start mac or pc mac come on that's an easy one music or fashion oh that's much tougher uh fashion gets influence from music let's go with music smart streetwear or street food street where it started they're both the same they're inspired by the street let's say streetwear because we were right at the very beginning in it, and I think we're at the tail end of street food. So I'll go streetwear. What was it? You can't, you know, you can take the boys off the street, but you can't take the street out the boys. So streetwear. <laughs> nice. Malaysia or Ireland? Ireland. Definitely not Malaysia. That was easy. Right. Tom Bloxham or David Partridge? My God, you've really done your research. Oh, how these, these are two good friends. Uh, Tom, because... David is an incredible businessman and extremely bright, but Tom is a visionary and I get invited to better parties from Tom. So I'm going for Tom, <laughs> but you can mention two bigger idols of mine. God, I'm in trouble. Sorry, David. Nice. No, right. <laughs> right. We've got two more. Product or traffic or conversion? Oh, you've done more research. It all starts with product. So let's start with product. Last one, market stall or shipping container? Got a shipping container, hasn't it, really? I mean, lots of people started on a market stall, like the Duffer Boys and myself and the Red or Dead Boys. Not many would have gone to the container. That was me. There we go. <laughs> Wicked. Okay, brilliant. Thanks, Roger. Uh, so to start the show, we always ask every guest about their path to where they are now. You've had a hugely successful career as an entrepreneur, but can you tell us what was your first ever job? And then what was your first proper job? Wow. My first ever job. I guess my first ever job was working in a tuck shop at St. Joseph's Academy. So, and the reason why I worked in the tuck shop was really I was stealing most of the sweets half the time. So it wasn't a, a very good practice given that I went to an all boys Catholic school. 
Uh, but my first proper, I sort of ran clubs at university. Oh, I used, oh God, I used to do market research. And it was such a scam because me and my friend used to just invent all of the answers in our bedroom when I was at university until I got found out. So uh, that was, got sucked from that. But then straight after university, got sacked from my first three jobs in advertising. Three months, three months, three months. They could never find me at my desk because I was so inquisitive. And I didn't realize at the time that probably the best thing that ever happened to me because the world of media buying was TV buying wasn't for me. So I realized if I did employ myself, no one would employ me. So yeah, I didn't have a ferry. They, they were probably my only job. I've not really been employable. Well. Did you? I was, was going to come on to that. There's a good quote about that. Did you, when you went to university, was it like a particularly informed decision or was there any real intent for you to that to lead to anything specific? Or were you like most of us? It was just a kind of, I suppose, a tram rail that you were on and it, that was the direction it pushed you in. Yeah, I wish I could say that I was sort of driven and I had a career path, but no, I had a Irish mum, very much influenced by my mum, and my dad was Malaysian. And my mum wanted me to be a doctor, and I did a voluntary service at Guy's Hospital. I was cleaning some guy's bottom in a geriatric ward, and then he started insulting and insulting me, saying, you Japs, we beat you in a war. I wasn't even Japanese, and I was cleaning his ass at the time. Wow. So I decided a world of service was not for me, and thank God, because I think I could have probably turned into a Harold Shipman if I was a doctor. So uh, I sort of just struggled through university. I just did, went through clearing. I did environmental science. I did two terms in soil, and basically didn't turn up again for another lecture. So I just literally... Barely passed through my degree and spent most of the time running nightclubs, which I didn't realize at the time was going to be put me into uh, or create a great experience for later license of running hospitality. There was, um, we had a guest on previously, so these are his wise words, not mine, but he said something along the lines of, you can only see some things in the rear view mirror, as in like looking back retrospectively, you can say things have been beneficial, like you said about been fired from from advertising you've described yourself as unemployable and curious did you did you think you were unemployable and curious at the time no i thought i was sort of flawed i think sort of steve jobs once famously coined you know you you can connect up the dots of your life and actually what i realized is those really bad moments in my life were actually really good moments because they forced me to where I got to. So it being unemployed, being unemployed, if I wasn't made unemployed, I would have probably worked in employment and hated it. So I was really glad I got sad. And it, it was almost felt as though every time I've gone down what I thought was a another path, which was maybe not what I thought was the desired path, it was actually a better path. And that, that really happened throughout my whole business career. I think I spent most of my time in my business sort of just trying to solve problems. So when I see problems now, I've just got a very, very positive attitude for them because basically if I solve that problem, that means that somebody else isn't solving it. So, yeah, I sort of agree with what you said. You can only really sort of look back at your career and sort of 
reached the conclusion that those problems were actually really good things. And if you didn't have those problems, you would have got to where you were. What are, what are the biggest um, bits or consistent feedback we get, particularly from people who are trying to start something, typically a, a career, is that there's a huge sense of anxiety, probably at the time when you're not when you haven't got the benefit of that rear view mirror to see things were beneficial. Um, and it's difficult because when you say things along the lines of, oh, don't worry, it'll all work out in the end, it just sounds like a load of nonsense, right? But actually talking to people like you and previous guests who have effectively proved the point is, is hugely beneficial. I want to move on to talking about Boxfresh specifically. How did that come about? And was there a problem there you were solving or was that just something that naturally just occurred? I mean, I want to go back to what you just said, Giles, as well. It's quite important for the listeners. You know, when you're 22 years of age and you've just had the sack from the first three jobs that you've been in, it's quite relatively easy to become an entrepreneur. You've got nothing to lose, really, because you're basically told you're pretty unemployable. But it's a really difficult decision when you've got two kids and you're in your late 30s and decide to set up a business. So it is a completely different environment. So for me, you know, I could try new things. I, I wasn't encumbered with I definitely felt I was a worse entrepreneur in my sort of 30s and 40s, largely because I had a responsibility of taking care of children because I had a young family at that age. And actually now I think I'm coming out of it because my children have grown up. I think I'm a, a better entrepreneur. And certainly now that I've made money, I don't need to worry about making money, you know, God forbid. And it's, I think I'm the best entrepreneur I've ever been because of that. So it's sort of all worried about risk. But then going back to, to what you just asked there about problems at Box Fresh, the, it wasn't so much problems then, really. There was loads of problems. There was too many problems to remember. But with Box Fresh, we were, we were coming out of sort of 1989, sort of summer of love, and there was a real sort of huge movement that was happening, which was really revolved around music and, and you know, what was the sort of the beginning of sort of dance music in the late 80s uh, and the beginning of the rave culture. And basically, the kids of the day wanted a new uniform and they couldn't get that uniform from their usual places. So they were going to places like Kensington Arcade or Affleck Palace or places like or Camden or the market to, to buy the new uniform for them to wear when they went out clubbing. And you know, we just sort of grew off the back of it. And why we called it streetwear was that we just didn't really know what we were doing. So we were just inspired by what we saw of the streets. And that was effectively the beginning of streetwear. I mean, at, at first, we used to do a lot of relabeling. I remember we used to buy Ben Sherman uh, shirts, for instance, and just relabel them. You know, or we used to buy T-shirts and print them, you know. Uh, and it, it, it wasn't... You know, there were so many problems. I don't know really where to start, but we were learning on the job. We had nothing to lose. And, you know, it was sort of fun at the time. I mean, don't get me wrong, it was really hard work. But it was fun. So, you know, we just went with it and the sort of industry grew with us. And I think that's a common story that I like to tell the listeners that if you really want to potentially be successful, find something that's growing and grow with it. So clearly we've had sort of 10 or 20 years of technology and I think we're coming to sort of the end of that almost. All right, they're all, they're all going about AI, but certainly the rapid growth of technology, I think, is coming to 
end up. And I'm now betting that we're going to go back to things like consumer brands, but ethical uh, consumer brands, consumer brands that are concerned about the environment or or concerned about social welfare and have got strong ethics. So I've always invested in consumer brands, and that's, I guess, what I'm doing now. So it's, I don't know if that answers our question. but they... Yeah, I, it, I mean, it, I, I think it, it certainly answers a better question. <laughs> I think um, your mantra is, if you aren't special to your customer, you won't exist. Is that what you think is moving you towards ethical consumer brands? Because there's a term actually, but I wasn't familiar with that came up in the research where you talk about uh, zebra organisations, yeah, which which kind of has that motive, that more kind of purposeful motive. Is that something that you think has grown from you personally in terms of what you're more interested in now in your current yeah. position, or do you think that's just the the way customers' own um, wants are changing? My mantra through life, through a consumer brand history of starting Box Fresh one of the first British streetwear brands, bringing in brands like Carhartt into the UK and Penfield, selling that to Pentland brands who own JD Sports, then representing lots of brands and buying and selling brands like One True Saxon and working with Universal Music and working with Superdry and, and Religion and Religion and Religion and Mixed or whatever. And then later on, developing Box Park, I always believed if you weren't special to the customer, you, you wouldn't exist. So that was one sort of mantra, okay? And that that really appeals to the fact that I'm, I feel really in tune with my emotional self. And why has that happened? Because when I was owner of Box Fresh, we used to make 2,000 products a year, 2,000 SKUs. And there wasn't a computer says do this. You just had to go. I like that teacher. I like that fabric. I like that fit. Make it. Let's just trust our feeling. But after sort of a period of being in that industry for 10, 15 years, I just had a real trust of my own judgment. And that was really for me my eureka moment. If there was a eureka moment, just trusting my feeling. And I and I never forget, and I know you've got a lot of um advertising and marketing. Listeners, I never forget meeting this guy called Ted De Cruz when I was a really young man, and at the time he was one of Britain's most infamous brand consultants, and he worked as sort of creative director for Walt Holland. And he sort of sat me down, Roger, and he said, "Look, Roger, if you're not special to your brand, you're not going to exist." Now you got to remember, this was in like 1992. You know, this is like 30 years ago. He was speaking out about being special, and he really understood. The, the biological and psychological needs of the customer, as, as we now would talk about Maslow's hierarchy of human needs. And you move up through that hierarchy of human needs from, from food, from shelter, to eventually a need to feel special, which can be translated as a need to, to be better than the next person. And, you know, unfortunately, we all have ego and... There is a real need for people sometimes, well, there is a need for people to feel better than the next person. Why does a young customer now spend 60 quid on a Supreme white T-shirt when you can get the same T-shirt from Ains without a Supreme branding in it for £10? So that's the market that I've always been in, being special to your customer. Well, I'm in a lucky position now. You know, I... 
have made enough money. I'm comfortable. I don't really necessarily get a lot of enjoyment and spending a lot of money. It's quite bizarre for me to actually now want to spend money. I actually get enjoyment from not spending money because towards saving money. I actually quite like that. So what I'm trying to do now is to give a bit back because that's what I enjoy. And so I think Peter Crouch once famously said, if you weren't, what, what, would, have, what would you have been, Peter, if you weren't a footballer? He said a virgin. Well, if I was an entrepreneur, I'd probably be a virgin. It gave me a real feeling of self-worth. So I want to give something back to the entrepreneurial community. And the next thing that I want to do is I want to give something back to society. So I really believe that, the f- the f- that I want to start investing in future entrepreneurs that um, want to make a better world, not just make money not only be profitable, but want to be, make a better world. And I'm sort of sick and tired a little bit of this concept of chasing the unicorn. You know, I really dislike the whole Adam Newman sort of fake it until you make it in Elizabeth Holmes. They disgust me, really. So I'm I'm much more turned on by what I would call, not unicorns, but zebras, businesses that are black and white, that not only want to be profitable, but want to make a better world. And I and I like, I don't know, there's a proverb, isn't there, out there. For me to make the most change in the rest of my life, I can I can feed somebody a fish or I can give them a fishing pole. And that's what I'm trying to do with a venture capital fund, investing in ESG consumer brands. I'm trying to fund businesses that will make society a little bit better. And do you know what? Hopefully... I feel as though I've made this world a bit better, you know, and I'm not just driven by greed. I'm sickened by the likes of your Donald Trumps and your Boris Johnsons and your trusts of this world that all they ever want to do is do things for their own gain. That's not me. I don't, I, they're, they're quite base individuals, to be honest, and that the last thing I want to be. So I actually want to give something back. I guess that's my thing. Whether people believe it or not, I don't really give a shit because it's going to be down to my deeds, not my words. Is it difficult to balance that uh, when you're trying to identify who these zebra companies are, that balancing profit and, 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 as you say, a kind of greater purpose? Not really, Giles, because, as I said, I just, you know, most VCs that are out there. I think, firstly, and I've been backed by private equity and VC, and I'd say a lot of the VCs and private equity are pretty unscrupulous. They're only concerned about their profitability. And I think I can't set up an ESG fund and not have fundamental ESG values ourselves. So we want to have a B Corp fund. So, you know, what what we're doing is to try to treat um, consumer brands and, and entrepreneurs in a fair way. And when it comes to judging which one, I'm it goes back to what I said earlier. It's about me, you know, following my emotion. I'm not led by data. I don't want an analyst going, oh, that number's good and X, Y, Z, and we can do X, Y, Z. I want to meet those people. I want to get a sense of them as people. And I want to know if I like what they're doing and I think they're good people. And the rest will follow. It starts with people and a great idea. And that's our mantra. We're not investing in spreadsheets. We're investing in people and ideas. And I've spent 35 years investing in people and ideas. I didn't invest in 
spreadsheets. I started all my businesses from scratch and they all started with myself from one other individual. So, you know, if I can't spot another entrepreneur after being in business for 35 on 35 years, you know, God help me. So yeah, I don't hit that spot. We'll use my emotion. And I don't think we talk enough about emotion now. I think that we, you know, I'll give you an example. It's just, just something that just comes top of my brain. You know, I was, Watching this brilliant advert, it was sent to me actually by an ex-university colleague that runs Mother, Michael Wall, lovely guy, and he was really proud of this advert, and it was the Robert De Niro advert with Uber One, okay? And I watched that advert, and I thought, what a brilliant advert, but what a pity that client turned up on that shoe, because they just couldn't resist adding Uber everywhere. And, and do the obvious Uber pitch line. What would have been brilliant is to watch that advert for three minutes, which was a brilliant script, and at the end have a reveal, which would just said Uber One for people that like to go places and eat food. But well, we had Uber here, Uber there, Uber there. And that's an exact example of the bean counters that ruin everything. And you know what? I'm going to fight against that. I'm going to fight against the bean counters. I've always champion the creatives of my company the creatives are the people that make something special and i've always championed them and i want to do that within our vc fund nice i love that i saw that ad for the first time the other day uh and it's and it's a it's a cracker did you agree with what i said watch it again and see all the ridiculous little uber logos everywhere because the ad bot is a cracker Oh yeah, I, I, I'll inevitably see it again, and I'll, I'll certainly think of that. The, the, the thing that struck me most about it, and there is a maybe a slight trend of, well, at least I hope there is, people just having more fun and and just being a bit more humour in ads and a bit of playfulness. Because hey. when when certainly when I think about the glory years, if that's not a horrible term to use, when you think about creativity and advertising, and I always bring this up, so apologies listeners, but I always think of the yes. Rowan Atkinson, no, well, t- for me it's the Rowan Atkinson Barclay card ads, yeah, um, and the Guinness ads, yeah, I mean like the uh, Think Black and the the, the Swimmer, um, those Guinness ads were just pure gold to me, but it, as you say, maybe it is data, maybe it's bean counters, maybe it's just commoditizing or making a process out of data that's then informing these creative decisions i don't know but as you say it should be about people right i never forget when i was at low howard spring in the first three months i was there before i got sacked i think frank Lowe came out and we just did an advert well i think we did it for the post office and it had uh i should really remember it had a really famous uh was it albert finney or something like that really famous voiceover on it and it was sort of like almost like a poem and it was going to the train and it was amazing and then right at the end of it it was like you know you didn't know who it was it was the post office i hope i got that right by the way my post office but they they were the heydays they were they knew they had to entertain the yeah, customer exactly that it's about entertaining the customer you know to this day yeah yeah well you've got to be special right to use your words um you're, there's a lot of fighting back do you think we need to fight back against the likes of oh i'm, I'm mindful of, of picking on anyone in particular, but I couldn't not mention Amazon if we're talking about the future of retail. Oh, yes, I really dislike them. Come on, let's not sit in the fence. I, I tell you what, I really dislike Amazon and I really dislike our government's attitude to Amazon. And I'll tell you why I dislike Amazon, right? Because number one, I think he's a real greedy, greedy bugger as well. He's sort of 
mantra about making deaths out of tables, out of doors. Yeah, I think he's still got that mantra. And I think Amazon's ultimate um, goal is to dominate every single market that they go into. Well, no, I've got no problem with that, but let, let's have a fair playing field. So what I see with Amazon at the moment is they're destroying our town centres and high streets everywhere. During COVID, I'd watch the Amazon van. There would be three vans a day going up and down our road, dropping off goods at every single door. So look, Amazon is now the biggest single retailer in the world. It's wiping out all its competition. Now, I don't mind that, but I do. But let's have fair competition. Make sure that Amazon pay the same corporation tax as that tiny little shop would in Whitstable. Let's make sure that Amazon pay their fair share of business rates, which it doesn't, okay? It just pays business rates in some sort of out-of-town location. Or let's get rid of business rates for retailers, okay? And finally, and this bit really annoys me, Amazon, take responsibility for destroying the Amazon. Take responsibility for recycling. Don't, you know, pick up your packages. Pick up your cardboard. Encourage recycling. Because actually all you're worried about, Jeff, isn't it, is your bottom line profit. And actually, you are so cheap, you don't even want to pay corporation tax because you're going to reinvest that in other industries and they're probably your corporation tax is not even paid in the UK. So I, I don't like that. Sorry, no. I think we need to have a lot more long-termism about the damage that people like Amazon and social media are doing to the fabric of British society. What are we, what's going to happen when we have no town centres? What's going to happen when we have no high streets? You know, has anyone thought about the social implications of that? Has anyone thought about how that's going to disrupt society? Where, where is our land going to go buy a weekly shopping floor? You know, what is it? Is it going to be a world in which we all sit around a dinner table and have a drone deliver our food and we're just glued to our phone and our iPads? So, you know, no, I'm not happy about Amazon. I'm really not happy about politicians who effectively are uh, lobbied by large corporations like Amazon and the petrochemical companies and social media by employing people like Nick Cleggs of this world, you know, to lobby our people. And then they disrupt our communities and they create things like Brexit, you know, because they, they, they spout out a load of rubbish. So I think we need really strong government and we need real strength of leadership. And I'm really, really sad to say this. But I don't see that anywhere. I don't see that in the Tories, obviously, because they're utter shambles, the worst government we've ever had in our history. And I don't see it in the Labour Party because all they seem to be doing at the moment would be worried about winning. And that disgusts me because I'm a member of the Labour Party. Come on, dear. Hold the government to account. You know, where are you calling for a ceasefire in Gaza? Where are you uh, trying to protect British jobs with the catastrophic damage that Brexit has created. All you're concerned about is just getting voted in. And that's why I'm I'm not a massive fan of Keir at the moment. Grow some balls, man. Stand for something. Hold the government to account. Stop being worried about losing. Stop being like Hillary Clinton in this world. And I think our leaders now and leaders in business need to show more balls and stand up for something. 
I think um, you've hit on so many good points. So there's one that, that, again, listeners of the show will know means a lot to me, and it's just the just the privileged corporate loopholes that companies like Amazon are allowed to exploit uh, whilst single-handedly, you know, causing so many issues, whether it's the high street, whether it's the, I don't know, the guy who sweeps the shop after it's closed. I mean, there's a there's a commercial purpose that lots of people seem some for some reason kind of ashamed of that it exists. But if you think about the chain of people involved in any retail environment and the good that then comes from that, the fact that can be wiped out so easily by, you know, by something like Amazon's unpaid taxes. Jill, let's just focus on this point. This is an important point, okay? Because my understanding is Boris, when he was prime minister, uh, no, the worst prime minister this country's ever had, bar none. You know, uh, he apparently said, not only did he say, fuck business. Well done, Boris. That's where you get all your 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 taxation money from, actually. So, yeah, yeah, let's fuck business and employees because employers, because you actually get their income. But he also said, I can't save the high street. It's dead, you know. Be wrong. You know, I've been 30 years a retailer. So let me, let me explain what the fundamentals of retail are to you, Boris, if you're listening out. There's three things that really matter in retail. Everyone can make it really complex, but there are only three things. There's product, there's traffic, and there's conversion, okay? And I'm going to tell you why physical retail is better than online in all three of those cases. So product, until Amazon is able to do, materialize a product in my hands and I can touch and feel it and see the exact color you're never going to have a better environment for showing your product than a shop. And that's what Steve Jobs knew when he opened up these beautiful churches for Apple retail to show his products off, to let people touch and feel them. So when it comes to product, you're compromising your brand when you're not showing it in a shop. Yes, you can have the ease of selling it online, but you need to engage with the customer, first of all. So actually physical Massive tip, never compromise your brand, according to Richard Branson, okay? And you are when you're showing your product just online. The second thing is traffic. Yeah, in the early days of of online, traffic might be more cost efficient, but now it can cost you one pound just for a click, you know, with Google uh, CPC campaigns, okay? So it's really expensive now to get traffic. And actually, you can create more cost-effective traffic in stores. And that's what people like Primark have realized. That's what IKEA realized with big box retail. Okay, so I would argue you can create more cost-effective traffic if we level the playing field with the likes of Amazon and didn't have archaic, the Keynesian business rate. And we could create really cost-effective traffic on the high street. And finally, conversion. Okay, let me ask you a question, Giles. What's your average conversion rate of online versus in-store? Going to be a fraction, a fraction of in-store. One in 100 customers, 1% conversion rate, okay? Is your average, 1% to 2%, okay? That's your industry benchmark. It does depend on industry. Stores convert 10 times better, 1 in 10. Okay, so what I argue is that the three key pillars of retail Actually, stores can do it better, but they can only do it better if we create a level playing field with our love. So what you need is experts to guide the government 
you know, let's stop doing populist things that sound good, but actually have long-term visions for how you create a long-term wealthy country. The same long-term vision when it comes to infrastructure products like HS2. Yeah. In the long term, that will make this country richer. You know, in the long term, better roads will make this country richer. Is it just like people just love, love talk? There's a there's a term that Mark Ritson uses in our industry a lot, which is that pornography of change. Is it just that people love to talk about things dying and so the death of the high street has just been that rhetoric that's been on repeat for a few years? I, don't, I just don't think, I'll I tell you what, I, just don't, I think that people are really nervous of challenge, challenging the law now. Yeah. I mean, we've just had a situation, haven't we? It's like, you know, we've had 4,000 lives lost in Gaza from Israeli bombs. Yeah, no, no one is pro Hamas. And no, but yet, no one is pro Israel bombing innocent children. But yet, everyone's frightened to comment on that. I mean, I think I made a comment the other day that, you know, I'm not pro Hamas and I'm not pro uh, Israel, but I am pro the lives of children. And I think killing 4,000 children's lives is disgraceful. Yeah, well but said. So frightened to say anything now. Brexit, it's like, oh, Brexit is done. You know, I think it's a famous sketch, isn't it? Just, it's done. Well, you know what? We can undo it because it's, it's it's bloody stupid, you know, and we've got to reverse it. So, you know, it's it's crazy. I'm um well, firstly, well said. I'm mindful we've got 15 minutes left, and I've got some listener questions to put to you. So I'm gonna I'm gonna move there now. Time, weather, we interrupt this podcast to announce that we will never interrupt this podcast with ads. Ads that awkwardly nudge you to contact the pod's host Giles Edwards on 01189. 952007. Only recently, some pod listening companies did just that, calling for guidance on direct mail and customer research. But we're not asking you to do that. Nope. Anyway, back to the show. And you know the thing about fraternal societies? It's in the name fraternal. <laughs> they don't let women in. Oh. One of the world's best researchers, Jenny Romanek, on episode 39 of Call to Action there. Not what we're after. Hang on. Uh, so asking oh, the general are. public for their opinion, Lovely. be it on Brexit or boat names, is notoriously fraught with danger. We've got two, starting with Celine. Celine asks, what's the secret to creating good products under pressure, as you've done at both Box Fresh and Box Park? Trusting your intuition. That's it. Just trust it. Got nothing else bigger or better to say than that. If you if you trust your taste completely, if some of the best creatives existed in advertising, you know, weren't necessarily the best creatives. They just believed themselves and believing themselves better. Yeah. Graham Fink's a great example of that. He just believed in his own ego better than anyone else. He wasn't necessarily the best guy out there. There was a lot quieter guys than him, but yeah. he believed himself. And sometimes people need to follow. You just got to believe in yourself. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, well said. Mr. Fink, different. Nice. Uh, the question two from John. John says, you've successfully launched Fresh Park and now Fund VC. Is there another box-themed venture planned yet? We're, we've launched Box Fund, which is where we're backing entrepreneurs that want to create a better world. So we're backing ESG consumer brands. Yeah. Are there any other themed ventures ahead of that? I think that's enough. <laughs> nice. 
And you and you're you've anticipated is it twenty? You're but you're backing twenty of these um these businesses. Uh, we we're going to raise a twenty million fund, and um, we're going to be investing sums of between a hundred thousand and one million in in twenty to thirty businesses. The name of that that comedian. Sorry, I was a bit distracted. Was it Amid Dajali? I've got that wrong. And it we made our decision. It's just, it, it, please, anyone that wants to really laugh at the ridiculousness of Brexit, please listen to that. Nice. Yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll try and find it. It should be linked in this episode then if you're listening. If we found it, there'll be a link there. There's a, there's, I'm going to squeeze one more listener questioning because we did have, we did have loads in. Um, and this is, this is moving to a whole different place altogether. Chris asks, as a keen golfer, so Chris obviously Ooh. either knows you well or, or doesn't, depending on how true that is. Are there any lessons you've learned on the golf course that you can take into the boardroom? Wow. Yes, there is. So there's, there's so many lessons I learned from golf. So golf's one of the few occasions where I'm totally in the moment. You know, I, I'm privileged to walk some of the most beautiful countryside in the UK and Ireland where I've predominantly played my golf. Uh, to get great exercise, see some sights that I'd never see again. And also just the camaraderie of playing with other guys and just talking the talk, you know, you know, not really no agenda, just talking about maybe this little white ball that you got hit in this hole. And it's so it's so ridiculous. So well, simple, what, brutally I- simple when you put it like that. Yeah, but what have I learned from it? I've learned to enjoy the moment. I've learned to take time off and I've learned to really value relationships. And I think on a golf course, you have the time to, to build relationships. So yeah, I've really learned a lot from golf and I think it's really important to have a passion outside of work, you know, and golf definitely is my passion. You know, I love it. I absolutely adore the game and, you know, if, if anything, you know, maybe I spend too much time, but I'm sort of, I love taking time off and not thinking about anything. Nice. Do you watch golf as well? I, I do, but I'm not massively into watching golf because what I really enjoy about golf, golf is the walking, the exercise and the banter and the views. I realised that during COVID. It wasn't, yeah, I'm, I'm an all right golfer, you know, but I'm not your next Tiger Woods, so... You know, it's I enjoy those bits as much as the golf. So just watching golf itself, it, if only if it, I'm going to try and pick up some tips, you know, that's about it. No, I went to the Ryder Cup, you know, in the British Open or the Open. Nice. And I only ask because I'm a terrible golfer, but I find watching golf strangely therapeutic. The Ryder Cup is amazing. Yeah, yeah especially recently. Um, the final part of the interview, then, I think we've got time for this, is our four pertinent poses that we put to all of our guests. Starting with, what advice would you give to your younger self? Really, really good question. I think I'd be a better listener, you know. And it, it takes real humbleness to to listen. And I think that when I was younger, I wasn't very humble because I really lacked confidence. And I think we get that from a lot of people. A lot of entrepreneurs are like myself. You might think they're really confident, but they're not. And 
usually they're, they're, they're driven by ego and need to prove. So if you take a look at someone like Steve Jobs, he was adopted at a young age. So I think there's an insecurity there. Someone like Elon Musk was had a very difficult childhood and a dip, difficult upbringing with a violent father, I think, is what I led to believe. Yeah. Um, and again, you know, was bullied at school. So I think he's about proving. Um, Richard Branson had a criminal record and also probably wasn't the richest guy at the most ex very expensive public school. Uh, Alan Sugar, probably not, not the most tallest individual in the world. Again, a need to prove. So I think there's a, a and I, my need to prove was sort of a failed doctor, I guess, and not really ever really achieving what I did, wanted to achieve academically, maybe, or not finding my calling. And certainly not what I wanted to achieve from a career because I never had one. The only career I had was probably myself. It's driven by need to prove. And I think that drives a lot of people. So, yeah. 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 Good answer. Uh, number two Thank is you. if you could banish one thing from the industry, what would it be and why? So the industry could just be business broadly, I suppose, but it's up to you. If I could banish one thing, oh, God. Politics in the office. I think really, really bad. Sort of really sort of creating a culture in which you're really encouraged to, to admit you messed up rather than try to prove you did well. Okay. I think I think that's that's one, you know, just really try to encourage this idea of teamwork and collective responsibility and everyone working together. I think it's really important for people to share in your success so at box part i gave 10 percent of my shareholding away to my company employees and you know it made me it was really great for me it made me feel great but also i felt that it was a big thank you for the people that got me there so i think this idea of only the director's benefit i don't really like that and uh, getting back to the office, I think there's nothing that you can... I love sort of working in groups with people. And I think it's really hard, particularly for young people, to be working from home. And a sort of obsession with tech and data, I think I like to get away from that. So there's a few. Yeah, nice. Nice. Good answers. Uh, number three, are there any books that you can re recommend to our listeners? Oh, so you know, I hate to say this, I'm really embarrassed by this. I'm not a great reader. Actually. I mean, I, I mean, do. no, and I don't know why because I think I pick up too hard books to read and they're really boring. I think I need to find well, no, one read, but I don't read as my, my, my daughter reads like a couple of books a week, so you know, I'm embarrassed by her to be honest. Um, but I do listen to a lot of podcasts and audio. Okay. So the, the the two that I've just listened to at the moment, which I absolutely adored, was one was uh, Rory Stewart, uh, Politics and the Edge. And, you know, it was just, I've sort of reached out to Rory a few times. I've got to know him a little bit. And you know what? I, it's just lovely to see a politician that's actually trying to do the right thing. Yeah. And not just try to further his career. And that's what I believe Rory Stewart's doing. And I think if you think this government was bad, if you listen to this 
book or read this book, you'll think it's twice as bad as you thought it was, maybe 10 times as bad. It is shambolic. I mean, it is. You cannot believe it. So I thought that was a real insight. And I think we need a complete upheaval of the whole political system in Britain to change it. You know, I just think there's too much horse trading. And I just think we need fundamental change. I think we need a movement like we had with Macron and create an armed party and get rid of all the politicians, to be honest with you. Because the ones that are really good, I don't think they get a chance to do anything because they just have to fall in their sword. Um, so that was really good. And I really coincidentally liked Alistair Campbell's book, um, which is, um, uh, But What Can I Do? Because I really think that sort of empowered people because I'm really sort of disappointed by this sort of generation. I sort of grew up in a generation of Citizen Smith, sort of CND, sort of whopping, you know, uh, poll tax. And, you know, we were constantly revolting against the system, but we don't seem to do that anymore. And I, I think that's really sad. I think we just sort of, you know, we've had all the civil liberties taken away from an entire generation caused by Brexit, which was, which was, which was due to a bunch of lies that we got sold by a bunch of Etonians. You know, I'm fucking annoyed. And I'm annoyed for my children. But where are my, you know, F the kids? Get out of the street. Start, you know, showing everyone how annoyed you are that your civil liberties, your ability to live and work in Europe has been taken away from you. You know, and that's what I'd like. I mean, why I would like you to read those books. Be angry again. Why? It's like Dylan Thomas said, isn't it? I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to just go quietly into the night. I want to, I want to rage, raging into the dying of the light. But that's what I feel in my old age. I do. I never used to be political, but sort of Brexit woke something up in me, and it hasn't gone. So, well, fantastic. I mean, neither of those have come up before. So, politics on the edge with Rory Stewart and Alistair Campbell's. But what can I do? Uh, will be linked to in this episode. Perfect. Uh, and then lastly, we always dedicate every episode to someone and we bestow or hospital pass that honour, depending on your view, to our guest who has to give the reason why. So, Roger, would you kindly dedicate this episode to someone? Oh, I kind of had to, obviously, they're really obvious, like my wife and my children for putting up with me, but that, that sounds too corny and my mum or give me any opportunities. But in terms of people that really inspire me uh i oh it sounds really corny i'm gonna have to go with tom and david in a way so tom Bloxham, because we you know he started off selling posters in athletic palace and i've known him for 30 odd years and he's really inspired me in terms of daring to change and he's now daring to change cities you know and and he, he's a beautiful person, and I really, really admire him as a person. And I'm, I hope, you know, I'm lucky enough to call him my friend. And and I have to also shout out to David, you know, who I'm, you know, who is a friend, but I'm not as big as Tom. But I think David again has really championed um, creatives, and I love what he did at King's Cross and having the vision and the strength to say no this is what we're going to do this is how we're going to create it and this you know this is 
the vision that we're going to get these different architects. Because he, you know, for people that don't know David, on the surface, he looks like a suit, suit, but when you know him, he's not a suit. And he's literally not a suit. He knows what I mean when I say that. So, yeah. He's a straight man. So, you know, both of those I really admire. I think David having the conviction of, of, of seeing something through so perfectly in terms of getting across. Tom for his vision in terms of, of creating beautiful architecture. And and both of them not losing their soul, being good people. Nice. Nice. Sounds good. Well, okay, so this episode, as well as being dedicated to your wife, your children, and your mum, are very proudly dedicated to Tom Bloxham and David Partridge. Fantastic. Um, as a final call to action, then, everything we've discussed will be linked to in this episode including politics on the edge and but what can i do how else can our listeners get more roger wade uh you know i'm about to do my own sort of live podcast not podcast but video cast i don't know what they call it but i'm doing these um i'm hosting a series of pitch sessions at box park shoreditch called box seat where we ask new startup consumer brands in the ESG area a pitch to a panel and unlike Dragon's Den which is a bit of a uh, entertainment show with it's it's meant to be a serious version of Dragon's Den where you get a proper opportunity to pitch talk about your business in 30 minutes as a really good panel and you get an opportunity to win a million pound in funding from our VC fund, Box Fund, and we're going to be doing that over the course of the next six to 12 months, starting at the end of November. So awesome. Watch this case. It's called Box Seat. Box Seat. Perfect. Well, we will link to that if there's anything we can link to now. Um, if not, we can subsequently add that in. So that's amazing. Great to hear it. So, Roger, thank you so much for joining us. It's been, a, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Giles. And finally, thank you to everyone listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do share and review. Keep your questions and guest requests coming in. To get in touch, it's easy to find GASP online or email the mouthful that is call to action at gasp.agency. Try and I try and I try.